St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents Wisdom, recordings of classes on the classic texts of the Orthodox Christian faith by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. We are starting our third class, uh, and we're just going to be marching through the epistles of Ignatius. Let's see if this will actually sit there. Um, and we're going to be doing the Magnesians this morning. Um, we also, I, know, I had mentioned at the beginning of the class, uh, the book by Father Andrew, I always forget, how does it, Father Andrew Damick, but there's a, a Stephen, I can't remember if that's his first or his middle name. Uh, he has written a book that's based off lectures on Ignatius, and he does a great job of synthesizing some of the themes uh, we could have used that as our study, but I thought it would be best because I like actually dealing with the text, the primary text, because there's always little themes and things that you can get out of it that somebody writes a book, they're having to aggregate it together and synthesize it in a way that um, you're welcome to read it as well. It's pretty easy reading. It's not like a huge, an academic book or something. Um, so let's go ahead and begin um, with if anyone had any questions, one, one question. Five. Yeah, we don't have Zach's weird translation this week, so that's good. <laughs> Sorry, well, Zach. I, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll look one up if you want. Um, <laughs> who was the who was the young bishop that he was talking about? Do we know? Uh, I thought he names him. Like a, you know. It is fitting for you not to take advantage of the bishops. I think it's Damus, that's in chapter 2. Okay. All right. Because it's hard when it, when it does these uh, artificial chapter breaks and things like that to sometimes keep with the flow of things. Was there an age limit in this time period on when one could be consecrated as a bishop? Um, I don't believe so. I'm try- I don't remember what the age... So that brings up a good question, and this is actually one of my um, pet peeve. What is the opposite of a pet peeve? But like a pet, like hobby horse. Hobby horse. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> one of my hobby horses. If you read a lot of early Christian stuff, you end up with a distorted view of early Christianity. I think. And what I mean by early Christian stuff, I don't mean like actually reading the texts. I mean reading these overviews. Especially when you read them from like Protestant uh, publishing houses, you know a lot of them do a lot of great, excellent work. That's awesome. It's great that you can get access to some of the fathers in English or you know, etc. There's a great uh, edition of the Apostolic Fathers. I think it's put out by. If it's not Erdman's, then it's Baker. Um, but one of the aspects about early Christianity that it gets often overlooked, and I'm making a very long segue over to what you're bringing <laughs> up, is the fact that there was. Um, the canons of the church and there was canonical literature from very early in the church as to how the governance of the life of the church. You can already see, I mean, Ignatius, yes, he grounds all of his reasoning in dogmatic doctrinal points, but he also has some, you know, basic ideas about unity, right? Like, and these ideas um, about how the church is to stay unified, uh, it's not like, I remember growing up and there's always this question like, how exactly do we have unity in the church and have all these opinions floating around? Like, lo and behold, Christians have been wrestling with this matter for 2,000 years. Um, you get in the canonical literature, and I think we, when we think of canons, we typically think of like, if you ever think about canons, which you should be thinking about canons all the time. <laughs> Just kidding. No, please. You don't need to. Um, you think of maybe like if you get in that, uh, that we have in the library over here, the ancient, uh, no, the anti-Nicene or post-Nicene father series, you'll get a whole volume of like the council, the seven ecumenical councils, and it has the canons from the second seven ecumenical councils. And you can see all of the fascinating problems that the early church had from uh, uppity deacons to you know, bishops who are trying to make a buck off of people to, I mean, all the things that you hear about to this day, uh, they've happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and there are examples of this that are kind of, you know, I don't want to say solidified, but like caught in the canonical corpus, because it'll say things like, 
know, why do we need to do it this way? And they won't even say it, but like, obviously somebody was not doing X, Y, or Z, right? Obviously the synod was not functioning and coming together twice a year. So they need to make a rule. Like the synod needs to come together uh, in, the, in the fall and in the spring. That's great. Then the language there about uh, the synod needing to be in the spring is so it's all tied up with the Lenten and the um, uh, ascetical practice of the church to where uh, the synod gathers in the spring so that they may offer uh, the Eucharist without blame after this time of penance and uh, Lent. So you can also see then aspects of how the early church um, did its liturgical life and things like that. Um, and we'll come and just grab a chair. Um, so the, with the canonical literature of the church, you get aspects of uh, how the church governs itself, and I think Ignatius in certain aspects can get there. What you don't get in a lot of the overviews of um, early Christianity is it usually focuses on things that we debate now. So if you pick up like J.M.D. Kelly's early Christian doctrines, he will say, this is what they thought about the Eucharist. And then he'll go through and he'll find like some lines in Ignatius and lines from Clement, lines from Paul, you know, and then basically try to systematize like this is how they thought in the early church about something or like bishops, you know, just take and name your things. And they never pay attention to actually looking at the documents themselves, like the texts themselves. And it's all then also their questions are like post 16th century questions that they're then taking to the text and trying to mine it to see like, are they going to talk about transubstantiation? No, they don't talk about transubstantiation. So therefore they didn't believe in it. Well, I don't think any like Roman Catholic <laughs> apologist would say that like Ignatius would use the words transubstantiation because that's a later like theological debate. So of course he wouldn't talk like that. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that you can get with these uh, and losing the aspects that the church has always had order and we'll even see this um, and this is one of those bishops of order <laughs> uh, and you can see it um, even on Saint, thinking of Saint Innocent or he if you read the life of Saint Innocent it, a lot is focused on his evangelical uh, fervor and zeal trans, translating work uh, but he also built things he built a seminary he was wisely there's one story about how he wisely invested with this particular company to where he basically had built this housing for the seminary and then the way that he did the financing for it is that if they had to sell it within a certain period of time then the company had to buy it back and then by the time it was said and done 12 years later they basically paid nothing for the, for the seminary to exist in this one uh, property and he was kind of lauded for actually being wise about how um, he governed things so the when you read somebody like Ignatius you can see very much uh, this need already to govern the church and to order the church so that there's there's good, I mean this is also just good Greco-Roman sense too, you want to have order, decorum, uh, you know, these kind of things. It's, it's all through um, the fathers, uh, especially if you go past Ignatius to Basil and Gregory, they, they love to talk about this. Um, and so this gives us a segue into chapter one. Um, where he begins by saying, having been so uh, informed of your godly love, so well ordered, I rejoice greatly and determined to commune with you in the faith of Jesus Christ. For as one has been thought worthy of the most honorable of all names and these, those bonds which I bear about, I commend the churches in which I pray for a union both of the flesh and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Of course, in the immediate context Ignatius is talking, what does he mean when he talks about that they're, they're uh, so well-ordered? That their love is well-ordered? Not fighting like the Corinthians. Hmm? Not fighting like the Corinthians? <laughs> That's a good point. Putting How else is their love well-ordered? Putting, putting God first? I think uh, as we were reading in the last epistle of Ignatius, we saw the he loves to do this, and he'll do this again in this epistle, where he loves to juxtapose things, right? Flesh and spirit. Um, and he also, like, father, he doesn't juxtapose or put at variance father and, and son, but he definitely loves to talk about father-son, flesh and spirit, um, kind of unity, disorder, right doctrine, false doctrine. Um, he operates very much, uh, and also we had that long conversation about silence. 
and then the way that silence or talking, visible, invisible, all those things. We'll see all that again here at Nine Magnesians. Um, but I think for well-ordered in his context, he's meaning that um, early Christianity was very explicit about there's kind of a hierarchy of the universe, that there's a hierarchy of goods. Uh, so that you, you submit your flesh to the spirit. So I think part of what he's saying here, uh, their godly love is such that, as he prays for later in the chapter, right, the union for both the flesh and spirit of Jesus Christ, uh, in the same way that Christ uh, is flesh and spirit together, and that that was perfectly aligned in the way that it needed to be, such that he was the perfect man. Um, so, so the church in its unity is going to flow out of our, our love that is ordered to the right things. Right? That we don't love just the things of the flesh, that we love the things of the spirit. It's going to mean that we uh, forgive one another, that we have grace to want towards one another, that we will also, you know, if we need to have a tough conversation, we're going to have a tough conversation with one another in order for the sake of the truth, because there's something besides just kind of getting along to get along. Um, that there is something here in the church, especially for him, as we'll read later when he's dealing with uh, what he calls Judaizers. He wants to make sure that there's clarity as to what the church believes about something and how it should act. Is there any other comments about just the beginning here? Well, also based on some of the other things he says, I wonder if the sense of their love being well-ordered uh, also reflects that they are in union with their bishop. Uh, for Ignatius, absolutely. <laughs> there, there, he has such a strong sense of... Uh, the need for the, the life and will of the people being united together with the bishop. And I don't know if he could choose a better example of that than saying how Jesus Christ is united with the Father. Um, that's a pretty tall order. Uh, but I think he sees that need for unity in the same way that Paul did, and that that unity is something that sets Christians apart. Um, and that he sees, you know, what happens is exactly at the end of chapter one, um, Jesus Christ, I'll, I'll go back and, and start, the constant source of our life, of faith and love to which nothing is to be preferred, but especially of Jesus and the Father, in whom, if we endure all the assaults of the prince of this world and escape him, we shall enjoy God. Obviously, there's problems within the church, but there's also problems because the church is always assaulted as we all individually are by the prince of this world. Obviously, he's referring to the prince of this world. It's not the artist, no, formerly known as prince. <laughs> it's the devil. It's the devil. Just make sure we're all on the same page. Did you want to, um, do you want to know what the text is? Um, I'll send you an email with it in there. So we get then, because Ignatius has come to be blessed uh, by the church there in Magnesia, that he sees. Um, well, it's fascinating because he's writing this letter to the Magnesians, but who, he doesn't actually see the Magnesians. Who does he actually encounter? There in chapter 2. A delegation from? Who, who is a part of this delegation? You have the bishop, the prospect, you have the presbyters and the deacon. Yep. Oh, you got the bishop? Presbyters and deacon, uh, all three orders, uh, Damis, Vasus, Apollonius, and Sotio. I'm probably putting a little bit more of a Greek accent than a Latin accent on there. My apologies to all Latin lovers. Um, and he says there's friendship. I mean, we still have this basic uh, understanding of representative. Uh, I mean, we of course think like this because we have a republic here in America, right? Uh, we at least on some levels, whoever we elect represents us, even though they may not represent our opinions about everything. Uh, there's some sense in what they're supposed to represent our voice in Congress uh, and the Senate. 
Um, but you have here, uh, this is an ancient idea um, where the, this one bishop is able to encounter uh, the entire congregation of Magnesia through the, the leadership, the bishop, the presbyters, and the deacon. And this is still the same case to this day in the way in which we think uh, about diocese and synods and then also how each uh, self-governed synod then relates to other synods. Um, when you, what you have is our bishop is basically our representative head. He is the representation of the Diocese of the South. When he sits with the Synod, he is the voice for the Diocese of the South. Uh, he obviously governs the Diocese of the South, but like any good governor, uh, as any marriage will know, like it doesn't really work where uh, unless everybody is working together <laughs> to make something work. So the bishop is always being um, aided by, you know, other presbyters, deacons, or other, you know, laymen and women who are helping out, like um, treasurers, all this stuff. And the canonical literature will talk about all this stuff. The, if the bishop is not uh, using the money correctly, he can get a slap on the wrist from the synod. Uh, there will be, he could be deposed even uh, if he's not using things correctly. Uh, but this also then happens, if you maybe wonder, why patriarchs or why primates? What's the point of a primate? Uh, by primate, I don't mean, obviously, <laughs> a primate. I mean a primate in the sense of, uh, our primate is Metropolitan Tikon, right? He is the representative head uh, of the Orthodox Church in America. He's the Met we say Metropolitan, um, but if we were a bigger church and a more ancient church, we could say uh, Patriarch. Um, but he then would represent, so if he goes to Russia, he represents all of the Orthodox Church in America because he represents the Synod. So you have this kind of analogous relationship. The priest represents the parish to the bishop, the bishop represents the diocese to the Synod, and then the Synod has a primate who then represents to the global uh, body of uh, primates of the Synods. Uh, and they all basically are checks and balances uh, according to that. So there's no one ever sitting over and above anybody else uh, outside of being able to be basically fraternally corrected within the synod. Uh, and if there's issues within the synod, then there's the ability to bring in other synods to be able to help deal with that. Um, why am I talking about that? Because all of that is kind of a mystery. <laughs> For a long time, I think when you're in Orthodox, you're like, what exactly, how do things work? So when we're talking about Ignatius and we're talking about, you know, one of the uh, bishops of, uh, well, bishops, but saints who talks about this order and, and the authority of the bishop to talk about how all of this works out and how you get a lot of criticism of this idea of having one bishop, right? Because if you have one bishop, therefore, isn't it just he's the bot, like he's the monarch and he's the king and like everybody just, well, you can have tyrannical bishops. They don't usually govern the diocese very well. And then you make all the priests mad and then the priest wives matter. Uh, <laughs> so you have to deal with that. So, and then the synod can intervene. So there's always kind of these checks and balances going on. The thing from the next few chapters, Is there anything in chapter three or four or five there? Obviously, Frank has brought up uh, the fact that Damas is apparently a young bishop. Does that mean that they should disrespect him because he's young? Yeah. This seems to have a kind of uh, echo of a, uh, an epistle in the New Testament. First Timothy? Yes. That Timothy, do not let anyone look down on your youth. Yep. Despise your youth, yes. It's a nice King James there. Despise your youth, yeah. Hey, I grew up Baptist. I grew up Church of Christ. There's a lot of King James. <laughs> I remember one time preaching when I was, a, you know, like a teenager, and it was somewhere in Matthew, and it was th, 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 like everything ended with a th. So after a while, I was just like tongue tied, absolutely trying to th everything. Um, I'm glad we're using the new King James now <laughs> here and on the, with the altar gospel. Um, what, here, let's look at this last sentence in chapter 3. 
It is fitting that you should, after no hypocritical fashion, obey your bishop in honor of him who has willed us to do, since he that does not so deceives not by such conduct the bishop that is visible, right? But seeks to mock him that is invisible. And you have here very much, like, pretty clear this understanding that we like to say and about how the bishop is an icon of Christ or how you get to talk about the priest being an icon of Christ or different. Um, he's visible with, before you, but that just because he's visible or because he's young or because uh, whatever, it's not him that you're not, you are only uh, disrespecting, but that you'd be disrespecting him that is invisible. Obviously him that is invisible being God. Jesus, Father, yes. And all such conduct has reference not to man, but to God who knows all secrets. It's interesting here that it also mentions Jesus Christ being the bishop of us all, which is yes. a New Testament idea as well, but it's interesting how he brings it out here. Do you have the Greek, Frank, in that text? Uh, I do not. Is it just English? Okay. I'm wondering what they're, what they're translating here as bishop. I'm wondering if it's mm -hmm. episkopos, uh, which would basically be uh, overseer. Do you have Greek? Thank you, St. Vladimir's Press. <laughs> See, this says overseer, because that's what bishop literally means. Yep, it's episcopal. So we get so used to Episcopal, we think of like Episcopal Church, Episcopal governance, all that, but it basically means overseer. Uh, and the development that there was one priest who presided at the liturgy and who was basically the one in charge. I mean, you could tell when you go into a church, typically whoever is whoever at the front of the altar is. So in the bishop, the bishop is never going to come into one of his altars and celebrate on the side like I did today as the second priest because uh, he's the bishop. <laughs> and you can tell, uh, if, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but clergy, and sometimes we have more than you know two clergy here, you can tell if there's another older uh, priest here, I will move to the third position because I'm a baby. Uh, you can tell then when there's a lot of priests, you know, I'm usually at the end of the line because I'm the youngest priest. And you can tell, as Father Stephen likes to joke, that the closer that you get to the bishop, the closer you are to death, because that means <laughs> you're, you've been the priest the longest. Um, but you just got finished saying, despise not the youth. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, you know, every priest or bishop would have the full canonical, you know, uh, authority or ability to do the sacraments. They just, they're just young. Now, is that based on how old you are or how long you've been a priest? It's based on how long you've been a priest. So what you have to, what you do is you, so for example, if there was a 50-year-old man who gets ordained to the priesthood, he's going to have some like 25-year-olds in front of him. Mm -hmm. uh, that happens sometimes at seminary. We'll have an older guy who gets, you know, ordained, but, you know, there's people 20, 30 years younger than him in front of him. So Father Stevens talked about that being ordained orthodox late in life. And yeah. After 20 the years of this school, yep, <laughs> yes. yep. there any other here at chapter five uh, so I just before before we yeah. get there father if you don't mind in in four mm -hmm. it, it talks of those um, who use the title bishop but do everything apart from him is that's can you read that chapter for us yeah it is fitting then not uh, just to be called Christians but to be such just as just as some use the title, quote, bishop, close quote, but do everything apart from him. Such men do not seem to me to act in good conscience, since they do not meet validly in accordance with the commandment. Okay, so... Unpack it, but what do you think about that? Chapter? Well, you, they, they use the term bishop, but they act apart from him. Mm -hmm. So they're either giving lip service to their being a bishop, or they're saying that they derive their authority from the bishop, but they don't follow what the bishop tells them. Yep. Um, that, that's, that's probably the, um, you know, they... Plain sense of the text. I mean, they're not, they're not going to have, uh, they're not going to have a validly constituted church unless they're, unless they're under a bishop. Uh, and that is definitely the view of the Orthodox Church. Um, 
actually our our um, our old pastor used to say that uh, that that when your daughter brought a guy home that uh, wanted to date her, the first question you ought to ask him is, "Who's your bishop?" <laughs> <laughs> because if are you doing that, Frank? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I make inquiries first about his criminal record, <laughs> and, 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 and then ask if he's filed a tax return recently. But just, uh, you know, but that that is that is the next question. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it cuts two ways, right? I think Frank, you in the way that you explained it, that there is an element there then that Ignatius would see. Christian bodies that don't have uh, a bishop as being deficient in some way. Uh, and the other is that there's plenty of Christians who say they have a bishop and don't pay the bishop any mind whatsoever. Uh, and you can get this where there's a tension. You don't have Orthodox Christians who will act and you know even want you know the theology to be something that's at variance with what the teaching of the Synod is and what then the historic teachings of the church are. Uh, name your topic, but the, all of the hot, least debated topics that you see uh, in any Christian circle or online or in your Facebook feed or CNN or whatever uh, else you can get your news, uh, all those things, these are all debated topics. And some of those, you'll have people who say they have a bishop and they, they flee very far away from the teaching of the church on things. Um, the Orthodox Church is not immune to having members within it, just like the early church was not immune to having people within it who act and talk outside of the bounds of what the church teaches. Well, it strikes me here that they begin it's fitting not only to be called Christians, but to be so in reality. Mm -hmm. And a standard for this is not, you're really holding the right doctrines, you really subscribe to the right you know, documents. It's like, do you gather with the bishop? That's a good point. Uh, it's is the the way that Ignatius wants to hold all of this together, right? That just when you believe, and it's such at variance with moderns, right? Uh, especially, I think, because of things like social media now, where I can align myself and be a part of like a tribe of people because I we all think ideologically on the same thing, but you'll never see us gathered together in any kind of like particular spot. Um, but and this can happen for you know Christian bodies too. But for him, like. Christians are those who gather together uh, around the table to receive the Eucharist at a validly uh, stationed or you know, place that the bishop says, this is where you need to gather. Um, we unfortunately do not get to gather with our bishop on a regular basis, but the Antimension, Father Stephen and, uh, and myself serving here, uh, his blessing. And if he decided to move us, then he could decide to move us. Now, again, this goes back to, would the bishop want to do something like that at this point? <laughs> no, Probably no. not a good idea, uh, but he can. So, because this is, that's his altar. Uh, that, and this is the way that Ignatius will talk about it. And you all know that the Intimentian, which is the last thing that we open on the altar, it has, it technically doesn't have Alexander's signature on it right now. It still has Dimitri's signature on it. That's a whole it's a perfectly valid antimension, whether his, it's being exercised with his authority. Um, were you going to say something, Reed? Uh, oh, sorry, I'm here. Question, um, when you were all done with your... I'm done. Just, um, you know, the obedience to the bishop, when the bishop himself has veered away from the Christian faith, what do you do next? How do the, how do the faithful... You appeal to the Senate to get, to deal with him? Uh... In the OCA, we like to retire bishops. <laughs> uh, um, so, have you ever heard the story? I believe it's Metropolitan Clusus where it tells the story when he's talking in England with uh, uh, Anglicans there. And they had, this is, of course, in the 20th century where they're having like bishops who are openly denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they ask him, so what would they do like in the Russian church about, you know, like this, if their bishop decided they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ? And he says, they'd probably go throw him in the river. Um, which he's referring to the fact that the church, the Orthodox Church, has a very strong sense of like, yes, we obey the bishop, but if the bishop goes beyond the boundaries, there's going to be ramifications and the people can rise up and be able to say like, no, this isn't what we're doing. 
I've actually uh, heard that like people like yelling at the priest or bishop for doing something <laughs> wrong in the liturgy. <laughs> I I believe it. Okay. Well, it, it, is, it is a it is a different mindset though. You, you know, a, a lot a lot of us came here uh, from uh, from a Protestant background and just the idea that you are placing yourself under under the obedience of another person mm-hmm. and and you're going to respect him the way that we never would like a well you know in, in, in Protestantism you wouldn't even call uh, you wouldn't even give, give a give a title to, to the preacher you call him the preacher right but um, but here you go to the point of even even uh, you know kissing his hand and asking his blessing before right. you go and read something or before you put on a vestment right and, so it, it is a, it's like the authority derived from the office itself, even if the person is, is, a, is lacking. Yep. I mean, this is exactly the, the why the Orthodox Church has a high view of what the church is, right? The church is not just kind of a, a random assembly of people who kind of <coughs> believe the same things. That is that. But it's also they're, they're tied together much more strongly. Uh, such that if you were to leave the Orthodox Church, from the Orthodox Church's point of view, you've never really left the Orthodox Church. You just aren't gathering together. Uh, you may even be excommunicated from the chalice in the sense of like you, you know, have a penance that uh, separates you from going to communion. But there's no sense that you're not a, an Orthodox Christian, um, that you've been baptized, that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, uh, that we're going to remember you and pray for you. But... Uh, there is that obviously subjectively right i'm looking at like an objective level but subjectively you can withdraw yourself you can still be coming every single sunday morning and you and your heart and your mind are somewhere absolutely somewhere else and you still come to the chalice that's exactly why we do the prayer you know about uh discerning what is in uh communion and where we are and how we are then one of those with each other too that our communion uh, with each other is not being disrupted uh, via our own passions and problems. This kind of makes me think, oh, sorry. I'm go ahead, read. That uh, verse in, in Hebrews where it talks about forsake not the assembling of yourselves together yeah. as the manner of Sunday, but encourage one another. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that in fact a much stronger statement than maybe it appeared to me as an evangelical? It's not just, oh, get together, you need the encouragement. It's like, no, no, your Christian's Christians gather together, and maybe unspokenly with their bishop or with right. their presbyter. Yep. And so this was almost the, the very demonstration that you really are a Christian. And mm-hmm. part of the I think that's how Ignatius thinks. Um, let's see here. In chapter five, you have uh, again. I don't know if. Uh, are you all familiar with the Didache at all? It's an early Christian document that um, I think I talked about the very first class. The first class happened a month ago or so, so <laughs> I'm kind of forgetting exactly what I said. Uh, but the Didache is very clear in the way that like Deuteronomy and uh, the, the law and the prophets are, that there's two ways. It starts off at the very beginning of the Didache. There's the way of life, there's the way of death. And Ignatius uh, in chapter 5 kind of uh, repeats this in a sense. There's uh, there's two uh, things set before us, death and life, and everyone shall go into his own place. For there are two kinds of coins. You're either of God or you're of the world. And that's because there's a character that's stamped. A coin has uh, some kind of character stamped upon it, right? You can look at a, a coin from Russia and immediately, like my, when I came back from Russia and had some coins from Russia, the kids are like, what money is that? Like, it's just weird looking money. Uh, well, because it's not the coins that you're used to. It's a different kind of coin. Um, he, he's, Ignatius is very clear. The unbelieving are of this world, but the believing have and love the character of God the Father by Jesus Christ, by whom, if we are not in readiness to die into his passion, his life is not in us. Um, very clear about what it takes uh, to be a Christian and to follow him is to be ready to die into his passion. And I think uh, in his context, of course, he's talking about going to his own martyrdom, right? His own death. I want us to move a little bit. Um, is there any of the next few chapters that you all have underlined or question marks or questions? 
in uh, chapter 8, I think it's toward the end, he said, I mean, I don't have a copy in front of me, so I can't read it to you, but he says, um, the word of God, which in context refers to Christ, proceeded mm -hmm. forth not in silence. Yes. I'm not really sure what exactly he meant by that. Yeah. Um, on this account also, they were persecuted, being inspired by his grace, mm -hmm. to fully convince the unbelieving that there is one God who has manifested himself by Jesus Christ, his Son, who is his eternal word, not proceeding forth in silence, who in all things pleased the message. So, great question. The way that I would try to go about answering that in the context is to go up to chapter 7 uh, and look at, as therefore the Lord did nothing without the Father, being united to him, neither by himself nor by the apostles, so neither do anything without the bishop and the presbyters. And then this goes down, one Jesus Christ, uh, let's run together to the one temple, one altar, to one Jesus Christ who came forth from one Father and is with and has gone to one. Uh, that then this idea of that unity that the Lord has with the Father having been sent from him, that constitutes the temple, the altar, uh, and the body of Christ. Uh, this is also then in the chapter 8 that he starts talking about how that unity gets broken up. Uh, I mean, if there's one word that summarizes chapter 7 here, it's the word one. One supplication, one prayer, one mind, one hope, uh, one Jesus, one temple, one altar, one Jesus. Uh, then, and they all go to the one who is the Father, the one Father. Um, then what you get in chapter 8 is this idea uh, that people are going to come along and they've got strange doctrines. Uh, they like old uh, fables uh, that aren't really anything about anything. And they're still living according to Jewish law. And I think what he's trying to say there about Jesus coming forth, uh, not coming forth from silence, is that Jesus came with a word from the Father because he is the word of the Father. So that he is not, um, it's not unclear what his purpose or who he is or what he's doing is how I would try to understand that in the context of what he's saying. So would, would, would proceed forth in that context then be like in the Gospel of John when he says, I came forth from God and I'm going to God. The point being, he came into the world, sent from the Father to deliver the, to declare the Father and express his will to humanity. Yes. Okay, so it's, he's basically saying he's not acting independently of the Father. That's what it's not, yes. Okay. Or from like some silence that is the Father, that the Father is speaking through him. Like the, mm -hmm. there is not a silence around him. Uh, there's a silence, I think. So this is funny because Ignatius loves to play with silence. I think in the last epistle where he's talking about silence, it's the silence around the mystery of the incarnation, his death and resurrection, uh, which he again talks about here, about the birth, passion, and resurrection. Um, but I, I think he's underlining here very, as you already talked about John and Paul, of like, if you want to know what the will of the Father is, the manifestation of the Father for us is Jesus Christ. And that is then uh, where he, um, in chapter 9, uh, because you're having issues with Judaizers. So I want to be clear what Judaizers are here. What you have is Ignatius dealing with uh, Jewish Christians who are, obviously by the time of Ignatius, there is starting to be some real divide. Uh, that up to this point, there's still a lot of kind of argumentation, not necessary clarity as to how exactly Christianity, but in Ignatius's mind, uh, as you see in chapter 10, uh, or even the way that uh, the earlier chapter says, you don't get the name Christian unless you act and live as a Christian. There's always this kind of idea that Christianity is separate and apart and has principles uh, that are different than Judaism. So let's see here. Uh, in chapter 9, he's talking about those uh, who are brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope in Jesus Christ. They do not observe the Sabbath, but they observe the Lord's Day. So we already have a separation of the Sabbath and the Lord's Day uh, being clear with Ignatius. Uh, that our life is with uh, Jesus and in his death. Some deny uh, the mystery that we have obtained this faith. Uh, but then this is the, the point, um, whose disciples, uh, the prophets themselves and the spirit did wait for him as their teacher. Uh, here he's, he's making a very strong claim that who the prophets, uh, were disciples of was Jesus Christ. Um, this is, I mean, we kind of assume this right now as Christians in a way, like, 
what does it mean that the, who the we even confess this in the creed, right? The the Holy the Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets to talk about Jesus Christ, right? He is the He has come, uh, and so for him there is even principles of Christianity we see in chapter ten. Um, there is no other name uh, than Jesus Christ. And then at the very end of chapter 10, he's very explicit. It is absurd to profess Christ, Jesus, and to Judaize. For Christianity did not embrace Judaism, but Judaism, Christianity, that so every tongue which believes might be gathered together to God. Yeah, I like the way it, it, it puts it in, in this translation. For Christianity, Christianity did not base its faith on Judaism, but Judaism on Christianity. That's even stronger. The, the reason why why does Ignatius talk like that? Well, it's like the way we the way we teach that uh, you read the Old Testament in the context of the New Testament. That uh, everything that we encounter in the Old Testament, and I guess in Judaism, it it it, uh, it informs Christianity. Christianity is 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 the reason that it's there. So, right, so in the same way that Ignatius is saying, who were the prophets believing in? They were believing in Jesus Christ. So, in a way, he's subverting uh, kind of the claims of Judaism to not be fulfilled. I mean, you get this in the Gospels already, this idea, like, Moses saw me, <laughs> Abraham saw me, Isaiah saw me. Like, they all are talking about Jesus Christ, so that the faith... Ultimately, from a Christian point of view, is that the fulfillment of what God was doing is going to be found in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you get uh, in other literature this time. I mean, it's as explicit as Ignatius. Maybe they just sort of barnabas this, but that's... Well, even Didache, where he rebukes those who still fast on whatever it was, Monday right, and Thursday, and stuff. it's like, we've got to leave that behind. Yeah. So what does it mean to Judaize in this context, though? Like, does that mean, like, to just, for anybody to keep the Torah or to impose the Torah on other people? It looks like the way he's talking about is Sabbath-keeping is one from chapter 9. Because I think, I mean, I could be totally wrong, but I think the Apostle Paul actually kept the Torah. Because, like, I remember in, like, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, you know, for the Jews, I became as a Jew... Um, in like Acts 19 or something, he takes a vow and he's purified the temple mm -hmm. and some other Jews. So it, it seems like he tried to keep the Torah on some level, but of course he was also the apostle we know the most for strenuously opposing, imposing the law of Moses on Gentiles. Right. Mm. So what I'm not totally clear on is whether to Judaize is to practice the law of Moses at all, or whether it's specifically to impose it on other people. Well, I think you might even take it in a third route is to say that you're fulfilling Judaism by following Christianity and the law of Moses, and that there are some of those things that have been fulfilled and changed. So the one thing that's from this text that I can tell without like going through with the fine-tooth comb and, uh, is the Sabbath-keeping is the one thing that he's talking about. My guess, uh, partly because of his concern on, on other aspects of this epistle, why would he be concerned about Sabbath keeping on a practical level? You probably had a group of Christians gathering together when? Sunday. On Sunday. Then you had another group of Christians who were probably gathering together Saturday. on Saturday. <laughs> so what does that provide? Division. 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 So I think what's going on is they are trying to figure out how exactly they need to stay uh, unified around the bishop and around Christianity. There's a unity of practice. Yeah, there's a unity of practice. In the same way, like, there's a unity of thought, there's a good unity of practice for him. They all flow together, not like a lot of us today where there's <laughs> a disconnect between uh, those things. That's a great question, Mike. I don't know how to no, fully, that's, fully... That's fine. But part of it, I think, too, is um, it's a realization because a lot of us, and I think rightfully so, post-Shoah or Holocaust, are very attuned to being sensitive to anti-Semitism. And I don't think, uh, I think it would be unfair to treat Ignatius, because some could read this and be like, he's anti-Semitic. He's not anti-Semitic. He's 
anti-Christians doing things that they're starting to decide are not, that there's differences between Christianity and Judaism. Uh, and the, if you want to say historically Christianity was uh, awful to Judaism, I agree. Um, but in the early few, first few centuries, there was a lot of turmoil from both sides. Such, if you read early Jewish material, there is, I mean, you get some really harsh stuff about Christians in there. Um, so, do, do, does that make it okay? No. <laughs> On either side, no. Uh, but Ignatius' concern here, I think, is the practical aspect of keeping the body unified and uh, underlining that we believe that the word from the Father is Jesus Christ and he is the hope of the prophets. I want to end um, with two last things, unless other people bring a few things up. Uh, and that's chapter 13. And as an encouragement, uh, because we're all burdened with a lot of things in our, even down to our jobs, where we have to constantly being like updating ourselves and <laughs> uh, maybe even selling ourselves and branding ourselves, I guess is the language this day. Uh, but in chapter 13, he starts... Uh, with encouragement to the Magnesians to study. Uh, I think it's an encouragement to all of us. Uh, he wants them to study so that they can be established in the doctrines of the Lord and the apostles. So then all things they prosper, flesh and spirit, faith and love. Here we go with these, um, uh, I don't want to say, pairings. pairings, thank you. Pairing is better. I don't, they're not opposed to each other necessarily. Faith and love and the Son and the Father and in the Spirit. Uh, he doesn't always talk about the Spirit, but here he mentions the Spirit. The beginning and the end with your most admirable bishop, the well-compacted spiritual crown of your presbytery, and the deacons who are according to God. Be subject to the bishop to one another, as Jesus Christ the Father according to the flesh, and the apostles to Christ, and to the Father and to the Spirit, so there may be a union both fleshly and spiritual. And he starts off uh, this whole chapter about unity with... Uh, advocating studying uh, and I think it behooves us all on some level I mean partly in doing this class to be able to study the scriptures obviously primarily but also to study them the tradition to know what the teachings of the Lord and the Apostles are and then in chapter 14 I think you know studying can be wearisome as Solomon realized <laughs> there's many books to read uh, but I think there at the end of chapter 14, uh, the communion that we have together with one another is something that should bring refreshment. I'm looking at the very end of chapter 14, um, that the church in Syria, where Ignatius is coming from, may be refreshed by another church. And I think this underlines, there's a tendency um, in the Orthodox Church in America, and I don't just mean the OCA, but just in general for us, uh, partly because we're so few and then we can be scattered so far throughout the country. Uh, we're blessed to have a few churches within, you know, within basically two hours of us. Uh, and beyond that, if you're in a four hour radius, then you can start adding a lot more churches. Um, that we can, as a church at St. Anne's, we can refresh other churches. That we can, uh, for example, that we have this feast day of St. Tikhon's. Uh, coming up, uh, which is a, a daughter parish at St. Anne's, to be able to refresh them, is to remember them in our prayers, uh, to get to know them, to be able to share in uh, the life in Christ together, to be able to rejoice in them when they're rejoicing, to suffer with them when they suffer. Um, they are, well, they're, they're our brothers and sisters, and they happen to be in Chattanooga, and some of us, we even have some of our former members there, or at least former members. You know how uh, Noah, at least, uh, is there. So and there might be others. You know, you know, one day, God forbid, you move to Chattanooga, which is okay. <laughs> if you go there, then you can already know the priest, uh, you can know the brethren there, and it's good for us to not get, um, how to say, parochial or uh, lose sight of the fact that we're connected to a whole host of Orthodox Christians outside of ourselves. Uh, brothers and sisters throughout the world and one of the great benefits even if you get a chance of, to be blessed to go to visit like another country that is like predominantly orthodox to be able to have some time uh, for refreshment and fellowship in those places because 
you will be refreshed to sit and talk with somebody from Albania, Romania, <coughs> wherever, and to find that you both have hope in our Lord. Um, it's a great blessing. Are there any other comments about the letter to the Magnesians? Yeah, this, the, yeah, yeah. Oh, at the very, very end, like I uh-huh. think literally the last sentence, um, I think it talks about, uh, it, it seems to identify Jesus Christ as the Spirit. So uh-huh. what, what, do you, what do you think the proper interpretation of that is? Well, already in chapter 13, he said, in the Son and the Father and the, and the Spirit. Right, I mean, obviously he didn't think they're the same person, but like... I mean, I think uh, the way Paul talks about it, even in Romans, you'll get things... Uh, and this can be debated, but I know there are places where it's a little slippery as to when he says the spirit of Christ, if that's the sense, like, right, you do something in the spirit of someone, does that mean by the power of the Holy Spirit, or does that mean in the spirit of Jesus Christ and in his ministry, those kind of things, so, um... I think you get something like that in 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Um... I think it's also to be aware at times uh, their language can be at places where we might today be very, very careful about minding our P's and Q's and wanting to make sure that we are very clear who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. Um, they have not had all the debates yet. So that's a good question. That was one of the ones that I, I, I didn't put a question mark there, but I, I was just going to let that be. Yeah, I, I need to be aware that you're always in here. You, you, will, find, you will find like St. Justin Martyr and Irenaeus do the same thing, which yeah. is why I asked. It's yeah. like kind of surprising. But. Well, I think it's also the reality that uh, with a resurrected body, there's a sense in which as the spirit, his spirit is present, and we can mean that in a way. like Because that word just has so many. And I wonder, you put it up. I wonder if the Greek says pneuma, like nevma, or what, what uh, exactly the Greek is. Yeah, because like... First Corinthians fifteen forty five says Jesus became a life giving spirit, like bodily speaking. So maybe that's what he's talking about too. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Nephema. Yep, it says Nephema. Now I just know it says Nephema. I don't really have anything to say besides <laughs> that. <laughs> that is spirit. So. <laughs>